1: Good afternoon, Bob Bergman here, broadcasting from my command module at my office in San Jose, California. I hope you've had a wonderful week so far and that this summer is turning out to be entertaining as well. I know my kids are having a good time in their summer camp, coming home with new projects every day and new things they did. Today they're actually bowling down in San Jose, at the bowling alley at the Bass Pro Outlets down here uh, off of Almaden Expressway. If you've never been there before, uh, you don't need to go there only if you like hunting or guns or outdoor things. They have a lot of other nice stuff there. They have a pretty good restaurant, and they also have a bowling alley, which, um, which has kind of an under-the-sea vibe. I go there, and it's kind of like bowling with Ariel the Little Mermaid. So anyway, today I wanted to let you all know That uh, I have a brand new estate planning workshop that I'm introducing that will be live in my office next week, Thursday, June 28th, from 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'll have light refreshments available, like finger sandwiches and things to drink and maybe some cookies as well. But it's called The Seven Threats to Your Family's Future Security and How to Avoid That and I'm gonna be covering these threats right here. So let me just tell you quickly what they are. It's a different approach to estate planning than what I've been doing up to this point. A little bit different approach in the way I've been doing seminars, which I've been doing for many, many years. But the seven threats, it's gonna talk about losing control and or access to your assets when you least expect it, not knowing the law that you think you know, Not knowing your predators, and you'll be surprised who they are. Then your health fails, and it's never expected. Failing to plan when you can, as opposed to when you can't. Not working with qualified professionals, how would you know anyway? And you don't know the costs. And I mean the real costs of estate planning or the failure to do estate planning. So that's my next seminar coming up. You can visit my website at lawbob.com, L A W B O B.com. Follow the links for um, Living and Retirement, excuse me, Living Trust and Wealth Preservation Trust seminars. And you can go to a calendar, book it right there, or you can go to Eventbrite and search for the seven threats to your family's future security. You can register through there. Space is limited. I can only take about a dozen or so people in my office. And as of right now, three people have already signed up. So there's only a few spots left. Now, if you want to call today because you have a question or you'd like to um, ask me something that uh, is a burning issue for you right now, the number is 800-516-1220. 1220, 1220, like the the call numbers for KDOW, 800-516-1220. 1220. Feel free also to email me at radio at com. That's radio, R-A-D-I-O, at L-A-W-B-O-B.com. Now, I'm going to be, uh, let me give a, just a brief moment here right now. I realize that um, unlike what I tell people to do in the seminars I do, I say, please turn off your cell phone or put it in vibrate mode realized I hadn't done that myself, and the last thing we need is jazzy music going off in the middle of the broadcast today, even though I have a good ringtone. So today I'm going to be covering a number of different things. I'll tell you, if you email me at the radio at law, Bob, you can also get a copy of my free California Consumer Guide to Wills, Living Trusts and Estate Planning, my January 2018 edition. It's about 40 pages long, and it's crammed with information more than you might ever want to know about estate planning, but some very, very practical things you should be aware of, most of which I cover in the seminars that I give. So I'm going to continue today with an approach I've been taking the last few weeks, which I find to be, a very, I think, a very good approach for this show, which is to come up with questions that people raise on websites throughout California where they're asking attorneys such as myself for advice. They're bringing up family situations and concerns and they're looking for some feedback about what can be done or can anything be done, should anything be done. And what I'm finding is that these are real life situations affecting people all over the state of California. And it makes a lot more sense for me to present you with these real-life situations than come up with hypothetical situations. I've done that pretty much all my career, coming up with situations that could happen. But here, these are real things happening to real people. So let me jump in with one that kind of caught my eye because there's a lot of different estate planning things that come together in one place. Here's someone who indicated their great-grandfather just passed away and in the six months prior to his death this person's uncle as the sole trustee of the great-grandfather's trust sold off several million dollars worth of real estate the uncle refuses to give an accounting to the beneficiaries of the trust now because the great-grandfather has died saying that the trust documents say they're only entitled to an accounting after his death. So he doesn't want to provide any information about what he did in the six months before great-grandfather died. But here's an issue. The great-grandfather had severe dementia and had been in a coma for two months. The uncle refused to say where the proceeds of the sales of those properties went, other than to say expenses of the estate. Now, Expenses of the estate, I find it hard to believe that those would be in the millions of dollars. So probably the more likely thing is the uncle is hiding something from the heirs and beneficiaries of the great-grandfather's trust. They wanted to know, could they get a court to order a 12-month or longer accounting? They could certainly try with that. But the thing that I'm more concerned about is if the great-grandfather, which implies that he is of advanced years. If he had severe dementia and someone was selling off his property before he died, which by the way would likely trigger very high capital gains tax if the property was owned for a long time, the question that, it, that I think needs to be answered is, was this uncle actually engaging in elder financial abuse of the great-grandfather? In other words, was he playing fast-and-loose with great-grandfather's property um, and either converting, co- triggering uh, costs and taxes that could have been avoided, or was he taking it and converting it to his own use? And that, I think, might be the bigger issue in this family situation. So, um, second thing, right here. Someone asked a question, uh, said, my friend sold his house, which was left to him by his mother, He can't find his copy of the trust, I'm assuming that means his mother's trust, and needs a copy for the sale of the house. Where does he get a copy from? Well, you know what? Look through mom's records, look through her files, look through everything she had in her home. Um, Look on the deed and see if there's an attorney's name that appears on the deed. That's probably the most direct thing. Maybe you can then contact that attorney and see if the attorney has a copy of the mother's trust. Without a copy of the mother's trust, this person may actually need to go to court to establish the terms of the trust so that he can sell the property. So that's a pretty serious situation if he doesn't have a copy of his mother's trust. I don't know what else he could do at this point other than try and find the attorney that prepared it. Now, after the break, I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you some more questions and comments from Bob about real-life situations around the state. Feel free to call me, 800-516-1220. Talk with you after the break.
0: Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, a state planning, trust, and probate law specialist, Attorney Bob Bergman.
1: Hi, I'm back. Um, before the break, I was talking about some questions and my comments about uh, situations that people have around the state of California here. I wanted to put a little pause on that right now and share a, really a very tragic story that uh, just came to my attention a short while ago. Um, last week, a family from my children's school was uh, traveling out of the state, and they were involved in a car crash where actually uh, the mother was driving the car. Uh, she apparently uh, went off the shoulder of the road and then overcorrected to get back on the road, causing their uh, vehicle to roll, and in the process, the mother... Um, died of her injuries at the scene. The father and their three children, who all go to my children's school, um, they all survived with uh, some minor injuries. But I, what really caught my attention, I didn't actually know the family. Uh, it's a pretty large school, and I, I don't know the family. But the mother who passed away was only 48 years old. And And what that, I think illustrates is that people who pass away, they pass away at all ages for all kinds of different reasons. And when I hear something like this, I'm deeply saddened for the family, deeply saddened for the school community of which they're a part. And as an estate planning attorney, and this is something I can't help. It's the way I was trained. It's it's what I've been doing for more than half of my life. I can't help but wonder if they had planning in place for something like this actually happening I hope that they did and and if they didn't I hope that the father now takes the time to do planning for him and for the three children to make sure that they're taken care of if something were to happen to him I've lost Younger clients in the last few years, that it was shocking um, in their early 40s, in their mid-30s. And it's never expected. People pass away at times where you, you just you don't know what's going to happen. So I wanted to uh, pass that on and ask those of you out there, um, if you're a praying person, please pray for this family. Because they're going through a very, very difficult time right now. Uh, one of the things that is fortunate for them is that they do have a greater faith community, community that they belong to, which includes my children's school, and they will be lifted up by those people. Now, kind of close to that is a uh, is a situation here. Uh, someone was saying um, this person's BFF may have breast cancer. And the friend wants to know what steps to take so that the friend's daughter could come and live with the person who's asking the questions. Uh, Apparently, the friend has a sister in town, but doesn't really get along very well with the sister. Um, There is a father involved in the situation, but he was actually deported out of the country and doesn't live here either, and he's an alcoholic. So there's no one else in the lives of this friend and her daughter but the person asking the question and then her sister so the friend is scared for her for her friend more scared what will happen to the little girl if the friend becomes ill or passes away and wanted to know what can we do well i think in a situation like this the friend that may have breast cancer should seriously consider uh, first of all, putting in place uh, a nomination of guardian for her daughter and, and putting together actually an estate plan for the daughter, especially if she has anything to leave for her daughter. The impression I get is the daughter is a minor child and really would need someone to care for her. I can say that if, if the friend with cancer doesn't take steps to at least assert who she would want to care for her daughter... Through a will, through a nomination of guardian, um, that the alcoholic father might very well be able to just stroll back in and take over the daughter and take over even any property left to the daughter by the friend who may have breast cancer. So, this is a serious situation. With proper planning, though, it can be addressed ahead of time to at least give this person a fighting chance to take care of her friend's daughter if her friend passes away. So that's something uh, right there. This person asks, uh, how do you dissolve the living trust? Person's a successor trustee on the father's trust. The father passed away and everything's been taken care of and he would like to dissolve the trust which lists the family home and then have the home deeded over to him. Well." Pretty much, you don't dissolve the trust before you transfer things out of it. So he is the trustee. If he's the one receiving the property, he can transfer it out of the trust to him as the trustee, to himself. And basically, once a trust is empty of property, legally it doesn't really exist anymore. So if you think of the trust as being like a box that's holding toys in it, once all the toys have been taken out and distributed, then the box itself really has no separate existence anymore. So that's pretty much all he would need to do. Now here's an interesting one, and I'm sure this is not something that that has never happened before. Um, this is someone saying, my siblings and I inherited a house from our parents, and it was placed in a living family trust years before they passed. So it looks like, was in a trust by the parents the parents passed away and now it's passing to this person and the two siblings in this case he said my brother owes back child support we're considering selling the property but the amount due to the brother is not as much as his back child support and we're afraid that the california department of child support services i'm not sure if that's the name but let's assume it is if they will or have filed a lien can they well, first of all, yes, they can file a lien against any property that someone owns, especially an interest in real estate that they own. Um, and the person wanted to know, how can I find out if there's a lien on the property? Well, pretty much you go in the county where the brother lives, and you can look up in the county records through the recorder to see if any kind of lien has been recorded against his name from the state for this child support. Now, I'm not saying... Do what you can to avoid paying the child support. I'm very big on if you owe child support, you should pay it. But at the same time, if someone asks me for advice, part of my responsibility as an attorney is to advise them legally what can be done. In this case, if a lien had been filed already, then the brother's probably out of luck. When they sell the property, the state will probably get whatever share of the proceeds he would otherwise get from this family home coming out. Now, after the break, I'm going to come back. We're going to uh, cover more of these questions and comments. I do want to urge you, if you'd like to speak with me on the air today, I am taking calls, 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. So after the break, we'll get back to more questions and comments. This is attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break.
0: This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW.
1: This is Attorney Bob Bergman, and I'm back for the second half of the show. Or as I like to say, I'm kind of rounding the far turn and heading for the finish line. Now, I have a situation here that uh, just came to my attention Uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, and it's one that I actually replied to directly to the site because when I read it, I was personally outraged at what was going on. It actually comes out of uh, the Bay Area here, and I think when you hear the situation, you're probably going to get pretty upset as well. Here's a mom who just lost her husband, okay, and she and her husband have two young children. So again, this time we're talking about a dad who passed away unexpectedly. In this case, 41 years of age. Now, does anyone expect to die at 41 years of age? No. I mean, when you're like 20, you're going to live forever. When you're 40, you might know older relatives who've passed away you might even know of someone from your high school class that passed away in an accident or in combat or something like that. But in this case, what happened was dad had an insurance policy where he had named his brother as the beneficiary. which would suggest that that was done, acquired before he got married, then he got married, then he had these kids. Um, one of the children apparently is a newborn. And dad never updated his life insurance policy. So here's dad and mom and the kids living under one roof. Clearly, it was an oversight that the father who passed away didn't put on his wife and or his children as beneficiaries. In the meantime, the brother-in-law, you're going to love this, is buying cars, going on vacations with his family, while the family of the person who died didn't get anything. So the question was, is there anyone who can help? Well, let me tell you. Here in California, we have something called community property laws. Community property laws mean that property acquired during marriage in any joint form is presumed to be owned by the marriage. A corollary to that is property acquired Using community funds during the marriage, that's money from the marriage, is also presumed to be community property. In this case, it's likely that money from employment of the father who passed away was being used to actually pay the premiums on the life insurance that still had his brother's name on it as the beneficiary. Here's the deal. If, in fact, that's the case, this wife can make a demand for up to probably actually half of the life insurance proceeds as community property assets belonging to her because I'm sure she did not consent to having her half of the premium payment go into something that's going to benefit her brother-in-law when her husband died. So... Hopefully, by this time, she has read my response and the response of some other attorneys. She's gone and talked with someone where she lives to make a demand on the brother-in-law that he turn over half of the proceeds, or she may have to really go to court right away, file a lawsuit against the brother, and get a restraining order from the court stopping him from spending any more money or moving it around, anything from that life insurance Because otherwise, he gets wind of this, he may turn around and give the money away or hide it somewhere. So that's a very serious situation. But I think in this case, the mother does have recourse. She does have things that she can do to get at least half of that money for her and her children to take care of them. And we know that's what her husband intended. Now here's an interesting one. The trustee for an estate... In this case a trust has the key to a safe deposit box but is not listed on the safe deposit box as an authorized uh, person Uh, in this case a uh, two siblings who are the children of the parents they are listed as joint tenants on the box now I'm not sure if they mean that they're co-owners of the box or if they mean that they're listed as authorized signers on the box But they wanted to know, can they have the box drilled out because they don't have a key? Uh, In other words, have the bank drill it out because they have the authority to direct that. And then if they do, who owns the contents, the trust or the joint tenants on the box? This is a really confusing kind of question because... Joint ownership of the box doesn't necessarily mean that the property inside is jointly owned by the people. It just means more than one person owns the box, and you might have several people putting things in that box that belong to them individually. Answer is it's probably going to be the trust that owns the contents using the will of the surviving parent to get it into the trust. Um, But Still, they may be able to actually get the box open to at least see what's in there. Now here's one here. Question, can a person in the hospital set up a living trust? The short answer is yes, as long as the person has has their mental capabilities, they're not being unduly influenced, no one is threatening them in any way, things like that. People can actually do estate planning when they're in the hospital. I've done it myself a number of times over the years. Typically, when I'm called in in an emergency situation, someone's been given a terminal diagnosis, maybe given less than a week to live, and the family realizes there's no plan in place. And they realize we're going to have to go through probate if we don't get a plan in place. So sometimes I'm called in when that happens. I have to drop pretty much everything I'm doing in my life and help that family for the next 24 hours. Uh, But typically, I can get some planning done, some pretty good planning done, and in place, as long as the person's competent, able to sign, we're able to get witnesses there that need to be witnessed, all those things. So the answer is yes, just because someone's in a hospital doesn't mean that they're no longer able to do planning. Now, here's kind of an interesting one, and and the answer might be kind of surprising. Uh, this person here is the sister of a special needs person, which means a special needs brother or sister, and a trust had been set up for that person. Schwab had a trust account that had m- money in it, but because they, there was no trustee on that account and they didn't have the the correct address for the trustee, and the other, and and a trustee had died, so they had no way of getting a hold of anybody, they apparently closed that account with money in it. Schwab won't tell the sister of the special needs beneficiary where the money is because the sister wasn't the trustee on file. So they want to know what happened to the money, It's likely that if Schwab just closed it because they couldn't find anybody in charge of it anymore, they have turned it over to the state of California, what they call the unclaimed property department of the state. So if this person were to go to the, just search unclaimed property California, they'll go to a website where they can look up by name, uh, the name of the person who set up the trust, maybe the name of the trust itself, maybe the name of the beneficiary of the trust. Try all those to see if it has actually showed up there. Then the next thing, maybe the more difficult thing, is establishing um, establishing yourself as now the new trustee of the trust for the sibling so that then there is authority to take over that money and bring it back to where it can be used for the special needs person. Here's a quick one right here. Someone wanted to know, hey, my mom passed. I'm the trustee of her trust. I need to get the pour-over will to the court clerk. Is there a form to fill out? Or do I just hand over the will to the clerk? This is a pretty straightforward answer. You take the original will. You deliver it to the clerk of the court in the county where the mother resided, where she was living. This is called lodging the will. It's going to cost 50 bucks to do it. That's something the legislature decided to impose on people lodging the will. But once that's done, you're done and you don't have to do anything else. Um, If there's a trust, chances are you're not going to be doing a probate, but the will still needs to be delivered to the probate court so that it can be put on file in case someone needs to use it later on. Um, So that is a short answer to that one. And I think that's actually pretty straightforward. So here, this one's kind of a complex one. Both parents died intestate. Now, intestate means neither one of them had a will or a trust owning anything. The mother died first, and then mother's name was still on the property when the father died. So now the question is, Is there one petition in probate, or is there two in order to transfer ownership of the house? Sadly enough, the answer is two. There has to be a probate to clear the mother's interest into the name of the surviving, presumably the surviving husband, and then another petition to clear it from the husband, who now owns 100% of it, to pass it on to the children. So that's Kind of what happens when you don't have any kind of planning, you sometimes end up with two probates for the price of one. A simple trust owning that property would avoid it all that. So I urge people, if you haven't done your planning, time to consider doing your planning. After the break, I'll come back with a few more of these questions and comments and then my closing comments for the day. So after the break, please come back. Listen, call someone else so they can listen in. This is attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break.
0: Now back to plan your estate radio with attorney Bob Bergman.
1: Welcome back. I thought I'd just say right now, Mark, if you're out there, feel free to call back in 800-516-1220. Now, uh, got a few things here here here's a kind of interesting one and there's often a confusion I find between someone who has a power of attorney for health care and someone who has a power of attorney for financial matters things like that in this case someone had said you know dad please contact a lawyer to prepare documents all the person was left with was a power of attorney for health care and documents showing that this person was the sole beneficiary for the parent's pension benefit. Since there were minimal assets and no will, does the power of attorney and beneficiary documentation provide any type of legal authority? Well, first of all, the uh, power of attorney has literally no effect in this situation because it's a healthcare power of attorney. It would only apply to making medical and health care decisions for the parent having the beneficiary paperwork showing that they're the sole beneficiary for a pension benefit, it would be important that that has actually been delivered to the, uh, whoever has the pension before the parent died because otherwise they don't have that beneficiary information on file. But again, in this case, you kind of need to look and say what kind of documents does the person have And in this case, uh, there was nothing that really addressed who receives the property. Now, here's an interesting one, and it's a simple question, but it may have a very complicated answer. This person owns a home with his mother, who is in her late 80s, and owns it as a joint tenant on the deed. And then, so if she dies, would his two brothers have any rights to any of the property? Um, this person's afraid that they might try to take the home away. Well, the short answer is joint tenancy has a feature called the right of survivorship, which means that when a joint tenant dies, the surviving joint tenant or joint tenants, more than one, they receive the interest of the joint tenant that died by operation of the laws of the state of California. You don't have to go to court. You don't have to do anything else like that. You now own that property. A question, or several questions, underneath this is: How did the person end on the title? End up on the title of the home with his late eighties mother as a, a joint tenant? Did she add his name to the title? Did they buy the property together? I I mean, um, did he induce her to put him on the the deed as a joint tenant with her? when she lacked mental capacity to make a decision or or was he using influence on her to make it so that everything went to him those are questions the answers to which are not in what someone has presented here but um, if it's the latter the brothers might be able to challenge that as being some form of financial elder abuse but if it's a straightforward transaction person's been on the title for several years as a joint tenant, there was no uh, skullduggery, I've always loved that word, um, there was no undue influence or thing or things like that going on, then the person's probably going to end up owning the property and his brothers will not have any right to any of that property. Oh, this is a good one because there there can be a lot of confusion around this. Someone said, I want to go ahead and get my revocable trust signed and the real estate property deed signed, presumably for their residence, and recorded into the name of the trust. But I want some more time to think about and review the details of the will that was prepared for me. If I wait to sign the will until after I've signed the trust and the deed, can I still do a pour over will? Now, here is where we get into some of the intricacies of will and trust law. A will that refers to a trust has to be signed after the trust is created. This is because a will cannot refer to any kind of a document that is not in existence when the will is signed. So technically, a pour-over will will always be signed after a revocable living trust that the will refers to. Um, That could be done weeks later. I I just had a client come in a couple days ago. We were not able to get her pour-over will signed at the time we set up her estate because the second witness was not able to come that day. But we got the trust in place. We got the house signed over, turned into the trust. And a couple days ago, she came in with the other witness, and then we witnessed her pour-over will. That was uh, like three weeks later. So, yeah, you can have it signed later. The key is it cannot be signed prior to the trust being signed. And technically, to be really, really careful, if you make a change to that living trust, what's called, you know, an amendment, you want to do a new or updated pour over will because now it, you want it to refer to the trust as amended. So, we've been together for um, this hour here. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Um, Mark, if you're still listening, I hope you can call back again at another time. Um, Please remember, I do have a new workshop coming up next Thursday. Visit lawbob.com for details. And until then, this is Attorney Bob Bergman, Plan Your State Radio. Please feel free to give me a call, 408 247-0444. Until next time, goodbye.
0: You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, Visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio.